Again, Amos chapter 8, I'm excited. <laughs> Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now God is, you know, God is so wonderful because let me preface this. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was master of this. He provided uh, parables, or he provided uh Picture word pictures, if you will, that exactly uh, explained what he is talking about of vineyards, he, or he's talked about different things. He always has a kind of a metaphor, and I've always used this. The best way to explain this is, is about hell, for example. The Bible doesn't say hell and leaves it at that. It uses many metaphors to explain what hell actually is. It's not only outer darkness. It's not only a place of torment. It's not only where people are weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not only a place where the worm doesn't die and the maggot never stops moving, and on and on and on. But we see that Paul lays out that the core of it in 2 Thessalonians when he says, Hell is separation from God, from His goodness and His glory forever. So you put all the pictures that God has of hell, and it is, a, it is terrifying, the Bible says, to fall in the hands of the living God. That's a lot of times what he does. And that's where we're at here in Amos. He has been pleading with, uh, well, for example, back in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, But thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, nor go to Gilgal. By this time, Bethel and Gilgal had become a place of idolatry. Where Gilgal was a place years before of, of worship and sediment and holy devotion to the Lord had become a place of idolatry, of idolatry worship. And God said, seek me and live. Seek me and live. Now, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, was a contemporary of some of these. And he was, a, a like Daniel, he went into the Babylonian captivity. That was his thing. God, the Lord God, puts life and death before you. Seek ye life. I have no uh, no pleasure in the wicked. Constantly saying, turn, turn, turn. That's what we're doing now. And Amos has gotten to a point where God is saying, your cup is about full. And you know when the Bible's talking about, for example, the Amorites. Have you ever wondered why the Bible says the cup of the Amorites has not been is not full yet? Well, he was waiting as an example when the Amorites were a wicked people and a wicked nation that, that judgment got to the top and overflowed. That's when God enacted his judgment. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy rejoices over judgment. God is so merciful. So we get into this eighth chapter, and he said, that, that's the Lord God, again, showed me it. And behold, a basket of summer fruit, verse 2. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them any more. You know, it's a, it's a sad day when, when God has moved to the point of a disastrous, disastrous outcome. And here's what we have here. It's summer fruit. It's ripe. It is overripe. It is starting to stink. 
We see from, you know, if you want to look at Isaiah 58, for example, God says your, your unword holiness is stench in my nostril. They had the outward appearance of religion. They had the outward appearance. We're still the people of God, and yet they, they were ripe for judgment. You know that there's a, we've talked about before, we, we don't want to spiritualize the text, but we want to take spiritual honey, if you will, from the Old Testament and apply it to our lives. All of the Word of God is profitable. Jesus said that it all is profitable for us. Everything that was written before, Paul says, is written for our example. You know, there's, there's this pervading influence, and it's a satanic influence over the church or, or the professing church of Jesus Christ today that, hey, we're surrounded by such a shroud of grace that we, we've talked about that before. We're God's people, and, and they kind of let loose on, on their living, and they start attaching themselves to the things that detests God, that displeases God. And their conscience becomes a little bit calloused to the Holy Spirit, you know. Paul says that the spirit in a Christian's life, he can be grieved, and he can, he can be quenched. When we grieve him, we get ourselves involved in practices and things that grieve the Lord. When we quench him, we have we quench the power that he wants to use through us. He wants to live the life of the risen Christ through us by the power of the Spirit. So a lot of these things, Israel will have the outward semblance of God's people, but they were full of idolatry. You can read Jeremiah chapter 10 if you're taking notes. That will clearly demonstrate this. But in the middle of the belly of verse 2, he says, The end has come upon my people. I will not pass by them anymore. Look at verse 3. And songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day. See, the songs of the temple were, Hey, praise God, you know, praise Jehovah, and all this. But in that day, those same songs will be wailing because they'll realize that they have replaced the, the life of God with the life of idols and, and things that detested Him. Things that did no profit to them. God wants to prosper us, and that's not financially. If you're financially prospered, praise the Lord. That's so you can help others that are in need. But God wants to prosper us spiritually. He wants to make us fat, if you will. Our soul fat and full of vitality. When Jesus said, I came to give life, I came to give life and it abundantly. He not only came to give us eternal life with God, forgiving all of our sins on the cross, taking them upon himself, but that, that life would become abundant and fat, full of vitality and meaning. You know, there's no meaning in life without a relationship with your Creator. That's, that's, that's what the Bible says, and that is the truth. So those songs in the temple will be wailing in that day, says the Lord God, and many dead bodies everywhere, and they shall be thrown out in silence. You know, death was a, a, huge, uh, a huge deal to, to the history of Israel. They took great pains in burying their dead, and, and uh, Abraham took great, great pains in providing a burial place for his wife, Sarah, and so forth. It's, it's, it was a big deal. But it would come to the point where they'll be thrown out in silence. They've lost their vitality as God's people. They were not witnesses anymore. They were just like the nations. In fact, the nations laughed at them and said, basically, where is your God? Who is your God? There is no witness. 
Then verse 4, Hear this, you swallow up the needy, and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit. Now before we go on, you know, in this type of language, what they were doing is they were, the prophets of selling and, and, and buying and doing business superseded the worship of the Lord. You know, when it comes to the day when the, when the, uh, when the things of the world are invading the church and it's more profitable, religion becomes profitable, and church becomes a, t- a time of, of profit, something's wrong here, you know? Um, they lost the fervor of God. God's a jealous God. Did you know that? The Bible says that over many, many times. God is a jealous God. Now, don't get the jealousy, the biblical jealousy, mixed up with the worldly jealousy. They're miles apart. God is jealous for his people because he loves them. And he's made a covenant with them. Dean and I have known a couple in the past that this the woman, it was very, very tragic, loved her husband, but he just could not stop going out on her, uh, playing around on her, not giving her due, and eventually it... it well, the toll was tell, and uh, if that's the right way of putting it. She became a very broken woman. God looks at his people, Israel, i.e. you and I, with such fervor that he is jealous over our heart. He does not want your sacrifices. He does not want your money. He does not want your talents. He does not want your best side of your profile. He wants you. He jealously yearns for you. That's why the Bible says that his spirit jealously yearns within you. So that your heart would be his. He loves you. True life, joy, and, and, and happiness, and peace. Wow. Take a good concordance and just follow the Old Testament with the word peace. It will astound you. And that can only happen by giving our life to God and, and walking in Him and His ways. But yet they wouldn't. They were stubborn, and God said, no, it's coming. The book of Lamentations, Jeremiah, it tells about judgment, judgment, judgment. They didn't want to hear it. They got rid of it. The world today doesn't want to hear about judgment. And you read the book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah, and it'll, it'll show you explicitly the weeping heart of God for his people. That's why they call him the weeping prophet. So they were saying, you know what, these new moon Sabbaths, I wish they'd be over, man. i got to get back to my selling grain and make a profit. The Sabbaths? Oh, you know... These Sabbaths have really become a pain in our sides. We want to trade and sell wheat. We don't want to sit here and rest. What is this resting thing? we got things to do. But it's a deeper spiritual connotation. Our rest is in Jesus Christ. Our rest is in Him. And the Lord is pleading for His people. Look at verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Wow. They don't care about the poor. They wanted what profit they could get for them. Even sell the bad wheat. 
Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. The people that, that were attracted to him, that he had paid attention to, were the scum, so to speak, of the earth, were the prostitutes, were the sinners, were those that, that knew that they were in desperate need, that knew that they were far from God, that knew that, that something out there in life was eluding their grasp, and money and fame and, and fortune and, and marriage and good jobs and everything else can't grab a hold on. It's always out of their grasp. And Jesus loved those kind of people. He didn't have time to sit there and explain to those that were self-righteous and thought they needed nothing. Thus, that's the old, that's the old, uh, that's, I should say, his uh, great way of explaining the Old Testament prophecy of God's love for his people when that rich young ruler came up to him. And he was so excited and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knew something was wrong. He was rich beyond measure and that didn't do it. He was young and that didn't do it. He probably had friends and ate the fatted calf and all that. That didn't do it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. He couldn't do that because his gods were his fortune. His envy and his greed didn't have time to give to the poor. And he went away sad. And yet Mark's account of it says, when he went away and turned away, Jesus loved him and was grieved. Oh, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Because it takes a hold of your heart and it steals it away. And God is grieved. And these, his people were being stolen away by adulterous nations, by their practices. They were to be separate. God made a simple understanding if you obey what I tell you, your kneading trough will never go dry. Your oil will always be in abundance. Your calves, or I should say your cows, they will always calve. Everything that you need will be in abundance and supplied for you. Your joy will be like the dawn that will increase, increase, increase until you can hardly stand it till the bright of day. Because he loved them. He knew that the relationship with God, you know what a relationship with God is? Him giving himself to you. Think about that. The God of the universe wants to give himself to you in relationship. That's astounding. Look at verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works Shall the land not tremble for this? And everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And it came to pass in that day, says the Lord God, verse 9, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. 
you know, people people say, well, you know, hell surely can't be that bad, you know. Well, hell is going to be about as bad as heaven is going to be good. Because God's going to be there. You read in the book of Revelation that when we get there, there's going to be no need for the sun because the Lord God will illuminate us. There's going to be no anything because we're going to be, He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to make everything new. And we are going to live in absolute wonderment of joy for eternity. Now, I don't deserve heaven. What I deserve is hell. I deserve judgment. I got mercy. God loves to show his mercy because once he shows his mercy, that opens the door of his grace to flood or lavish on his people. And faith is the vehicle that we apprehend this, receive that to be our own. If Mike over here had a million dollars for me and he says, I want you to have this, it's no good to me unless I receive it. Israel was the wonderment of the world. You remember back in, in, in Joshua, the story of Rahab, for example, when they spied out the land and they send those spies in, one of the reasons why Rahab, by the way, is not only in the, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, she's also in that 11th chapter of Hebrews as ex- ex- exercising, exercising excuse me, faith. Why is that? Well, she made an interesting statement. We don't have time to go there, but she heard that of the Jews, everywhere they went was the dread of the people. God had prospered them everywhere they went. It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the same God that, that flung the stars into the universe. And by faith, she bowed down to that and hid the spies and sent them out another way. The Jews had a standing with God that other nations should have been jealous of and could have been recipients of through that, which will ultimately happen. When we have the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on his throne in the millennial kingdom, the Bible says that all the nations of the earth will come that are saved. And who are they going to come through? Israel. The 12 tribes, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. God's rule is of his theoretic kingdom. So you start seeing in all this picture how the minor prophets start coming together. If God judges the nations because of sin, you don't think like a good father he's not going to judge his people? And that's what this fallacy of, hey, I am so shrouded by grace, hey, I'm just fine. If you have that idea, you better watch out because God will spare not the rod. Oh, he spared judgment, thank God, through Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, verse 24. That we've passed from judgment, we've passed and gone out from death into life, because judgment fell on Christ. But the rod of God's correction, his lovingly hand, is always going to be on us because he loves us. Even the Bible says that a child left to himself becomes mischievous. You know? Do I recognize God's hand, not only in the nation of Israel, but in my own life? God promises me to be co-heirs in the kingdom. God promises me eternal life. God promises me 
richness beyond measure. God says, Jeff, your sins are forgiven you. Wow. Wow. Sins are forgiven me. I can do whatever I want. That's not what forgiveness produces. That's not what a life with God produces. He produces in us a perfect ability to walk in fellowship with Him and pleasing Him. What an exchange. I give to give up through the power of the Spirit in my life things that shackle me. I don't have to lust anymore. I don't have to envy anymore. I don't have to try to be number one anymore. I can give up through His power because Paul says we mortify or get rid of the deeds of flesh by the Spirit. So through Him I can get rid of things that shackle me. I didn't need them anyway. In exchange for that, I get joy, peace, forgiveness, eternal life. I could go on. People need a right understanding of God. We need to rightly divide the word of truth and see that the prophets speak of this. That's why Jesus, in, in Luke 24, wow, we got, we got just a few minutes Let's, let's keep your finger there and turn to Luke 24 real quick if you want. If not, don't, don't try to fight it. Let's just, I'll just read it. But Luke chapter 24. Wow. It's after he rose from the dead. And there's two incidences, but one of them, remember how he's walking, and he's walking uh, amongst two men. They're walking to a town called Emmaus, okay, which is seven miles from outside of Jerusalem. Jesus perished just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. <clears throat> so they're walking. And let's pick it up in Luke 24, verse 14. And they talked together, and all these things had happened. And while they, were, they conversed and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another? As you hear, you walk on a sad. Then, you know, they're basically telling what happened, and, and uh, you know, what things have happened. Look at verse 19, and he said to them, what things? They explained to them, Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, he was mighty indeed, and the word before God, verse 19, and all the people, the chief priests condemned him, delivered him to death, to be crucified. Everything that the scriptures had said would happen to the Messiah happened. And by the way, one of the things that, that is very interesting to me is they used the word in here, crucified. They knew that crucifixion was a Roman, actually a Persian, before the Romans had it, form of execution. Uh, I love the way C.I. Schofield says, an irresistible proof of, of, that this is the word of God. Because we see back in Psalm 22 and elsewhere that Jesus would be crucified. It wasn't even invented yet. So they're going on. They knew the scriptures, or they knew the things of the scriptures. So as they're walking, Jesus said in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, he says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, they, they, they asked him to go along a little bit further, and he, and he did, and as soon as he broke bread, he vanished from them and so forth. But this is the second one I want to get to real quick. Let's start that one off. And, uh, well, verse 33, the same chapter. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. 
It's the ones on Emmaus. And found the eleven with those who were with them gathered together, verse 34, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now as I said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you, or peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen his spirit. Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Well, wait a minute. No, wait. My Jehovah's Witness friend came by the door the other day and said, Jesus rose in the spirit. He rose spiritually. Is that true? No. Jesus rose in the body he was crucified in. They had doubts. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. As I myself, handle me, verse 39, and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still did not believe for joy, they marveled. He said, have you any food here? When was the last time you saw a spirit eat food? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he ate it in their presence. But look at verse 44. This is what I want to get to. This is so exciting. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. He is the uh, completion of the scriptures, if you will. And he will be sitting not only on his throne of his father David, but his kingdom will know no end. We're back in Daniel 7. We're back in Hosea. We thought we looked at Joel and we were in Joel about the last days. The prophecies fulfilled of him and so on and so forth. He said everything will be fulfilled in all the law of Moses, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. We got all the prophets. We got all the Psalms. Hey, listen, the word of God hangs or falls on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Bible, not the Christ of Jehovah's Witnesses, not the Christ of the New Age, not the Christ of anything past, but the Christ of the Bible. Believe verse 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures with really a close understanding that God is the only one that will open up the Bible to us. Oh, you might have teachers, pastors, evangelists, whatever, explain things, but we always take what we have been explained and look at them in the scripture. And when those two converge the truth, God solidifies truth in your life. It's a precedent that started back in Moses, through the law, through the prophets, through the Psalms, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his apostles, disciples, on down the line. That's how we know we can have truth. And not somebody's opinion, or not somebody's philosophy. <clears throat> wow. Verse 46, he said, He said to them, Thus it was written that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. You are witnesses to these things. As Israel should have been a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be a witness to God, we are a witness to the risen Lord Christ. We can go back to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, says that we're ambassadors for Christ. We're his witnesses. Benjamin Netanyahu said uh, not too long ago on a press conference, 
People must only have to look at the nation of Israel and realize that there's a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Benjamin on the other saying this. Wow. Back in Amos 8, we have a very telling verse, starting at verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Verse 12 says, They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Wow. Now, prophetically, we can see that as, as Israel's getting deeper and deeper into idolatry. But even God had mercy on them when, when the Assyrians came in. God had spoken to his prophets that Sennacherib was not going to destroy them. He did not. And by the way, if you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 32, if you're writing that down, it's a very interesting chapter because it tells exactly what happened to Sennacherib, which was a very violent dictator, a king of Assyria. And God had told him, we looked at that prophecy when we were in Isaiah, God had said to his people, he will come to the outskirts of Jerusalem, and that's it. And you read in the, second, in the 32nd chapter of Second Chronicles that story of how he was a massive army surrounded. It was coming out, and he was taunting the Israelites, saying, Are you going to listen to King Hezekiah and his words? Who do you have? No other nation's gods have ever delivered them out of their hands. He's lying to you. But Hezekiah said that we have the God of Israel fighting on our side. What happened? Sennacherib ascended, came down, had the city surrounded, was going to destroy them. And what happened? God confused him, and, and only as God can do. And the scripture says that Sennacherib turned around, went back to Assyria, shamefacedness. That night, he was killed by his own two sons. You don't mess with God. He will fulfill his word to a T. He's going to send a day and he's going to send a famine. Because you know what? People, you cannot trample the word of God. God is not going to allow his word to be trampled on, shredded, and relaxed about. We cannot take his word and just pick and choose what we want. We can't cheapen it. Well, I think that's true. I, I was watching a, uh, a video the other day, a documentary on it. Uh, a gentleman was having a, a conversation with a guy named Dave Hunt. And he was a well-known pastor. He says, do you believe in the rapture? He says, well, he said, that, uh, that depends. If you look at the Bible, the biblical account, yes, I don't think you can really get around it. There is going to be a rapture catching away of the saints. But there are new apostles and prophets and the new revelations and, and say that they aren't. These are outdated and we've got to go with what's new. Is that right or is that wrong? That's false. And a lot of times that's what people do through the ages. That's what the Israelites did. They lost confidence in God and they started bringing in all these other influences. That's what a lot of the Church of Jesus Christ is doing today. They're getting away from the Scriptures and they're bringing a lot of this influence in. Now you remember from Malachi, when we get there, from Malachi to John the Baptist was about 400 plus a few years. 400 years there was no prophetic utterance in Israel. And all of a sudden you get John the Baptist coming on. 
We'll read of him several places in Scripture, but mainly of in Malachi. And all of a sudden you have one out in the wilderness trying, you know, make straight the ways of the Lord. Wow. <clears throat> Famine. I have a couple things I wanted to uh, uh, read about this verse. You know, when God makes a mention of things that he is going to do, he's going to do it. And when people try to prophetically in their own mind say, well, that's not what it means, or well, that's not going to happen, uh, who are you going to believe? You know, we better understand that that's coming. And people say, well, of course we're going to believe the Bible. This is going to be such an influence, a deluding influence, Paul says, is going to come. The Apostle Peter explains it to you. In the last days, people are going to come and say, hey, this is bunk. Where's the promise of his coming? You know, Second Peter. Where's the promise of it? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, ever since things have happened... The world has gone on. You know, that's old stuff, man. That might have been that might have been a candy-coated hope and a promise for way back then. But where is it? Show me. You know, and especially when this Antichrist starts coming in or the world influence starts becoming, you know, people think that through science and the Internet and all these things, the world's coming together and it's getting better. No, it's not. It's a deluding influence. And Peter says, watch out, because in the last days... People are going to come in and they're say, wait a minute, man, your, your scriptures, come on. They're already saying it about the rapture or the catching away of the saints. They're already saying it. We have top pastors today and top leaders in the church that are saying, if we follow these new apostles and prophets and these new revelations, we'll have the agenda set up for millennium. Well, they're not looking for the return of Jesus Christ. They get deluded, and that's what's happening here. The days are going to come, and all of a sudden, a famine on the land. Not that the Bible won't be here. Oh, I have a, a... You never get anything David Levy writes. I would highly, highly recommend it. But in, about this verse 11, he writes, just listen to this. I'm almost through. Thank you for being patient. He writes, although the United States possesses more Bibles than any country in the world, that's not only true for Bibles, but that's true for study Bibles, that's true for uh, internet programs, uh, you know, Bible programs on the internet and so forth. More Bibles than any other country in the world, there is a growing famine when it comes to reading God's Word. Carnal Christians who feed on self-indulgence have lost their taste for reading the Bible. Secularism, greed, immorality have so inundated America that most people have no appetite or tolerance for God's Word. We see that all over the place. The pilgrims who settled America built the Ivy League colleges. Listen to this. This is alarming. Built the Ivy League colleges primarily to train young people in the Word of God with the purpose of evangelizing the Atlantic seaboard. Harvard, Yale, Princeton all had godly beginnings. Harvard's motto, which was adapted in 1692, was I, I, it's Latin. I'll pronounce it the best I can, but I'll give the I'll give the the uh, interpretation. Veritas Christo et help me out here, Joe Ecclesiastes. Thank you. 
which is Latin for the truth for Christ and the church. That was the motto of this seminary, of this college, of this place of learning back in 1692. Even today, the phrase can be found on many of Harvard's buildings. But Harvard's rules and precepts adopted in 1646 state, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and study is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17. Everyone shall so exercise himself in the reading of the scriptures twice a day. What's the motto? How different is the educational system in America today? By the way, these Princeton and Harvard are largely apostate. How different is the educational system in America today? God has been expelled from our schools. And the state has replaced him with a secular savior called humanism. The new savior has bankrupt our young people, leaving them bereft of God's word and therefore with no moral compass for the future. I wept when I read that the first time. That's my grandchildren. Moral compass, they're bankrupt. Most churches and family are not much better at providing spiritual food for a starving generation of young people. Wow, I could have said it better myself. A starving for the hearing of the Word of God. That's why I love this ministry. There is no starving here of the Word of God. There never will be. Not as long as... God gives these strong men that we have here breath. They shall wander from sea to sea, verse 12. From north to east, they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst, you swear, by the sin of Samaria. Samaria, by the way, was the capital of the ten northern tribes. Yet Jerusalem in the south of Judea or Judah, the, the two southern tribes, yet Samaria was the capital of the ten northern tribes. Who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Bersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. You know, I, I had uh, full intention. On, on getting through Amos tonight. I have one chapter left. But I just think it's important that we realize that, you know, people haven't changed. People have not changed. You know, there's always a, a, a people that think that God is a genie in a bottle or God is, is owed them something or, or God is, is uh, you know, you get your ticket right with God and, uh, well, I think it was Kenneth Copeland, or maybe it was uh, Kenneth Hagin. It was one of the two. Uh, very, very dangerous men that wrote a book or a pamphlet that said, How to Write Your Ticket with God. And that is the way a lot of people look at God. That God could give them things. That God could give them this. That God could give them that. Listen, God wants to give you himself. 
And the saying is true, and I'll close with this saying. The man that has God and everything has no more than the man who has God and nothing. God is all that we need. He fulfills all of our need. He fulfills that, that inner longing that we have. You know, I don't like the phrase, but it's kind of true if you think about it. Every man's born with a, a kind of a God-shaped vacuum. You've heard that in soul or whatever. Well, I don't like cliches like that, but that is, that is true. You know, we're apart from God because of sin. We sin because we're a sinner. We're not a sinner because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We were born in sin. David said, in my, in my mother's womb did she conceive me in sin. People don't want to hear that. But I can go one step further than that. We're not only born in sin and with a sin nature, we sin by, by practice. Because of that nature. And God is so richly wanting to bless. Um, to bless us. To bless his people. Let me take a two minute recap and we'll be done. I'm, I'm excited. I, you know, the restraint of time is sometimes maddening. You know, when we come to the end... Okay, you have, let's recap here, the 70th week, you have Daniel saying that, we, that for 70 weeks, he interprets that 69 of these weeks of seven years have already passed. There's a time, a church age, if you will, uh, of, of a building of the church, and we'll get that in next week. We'll see that, that Paul talks about this, and also James in that wonderful, uh, in Acts chapter 15, you know, where they had that council in Jerusalem, right? And where you have some of the religious leaders say, yeah, it's Jesus, he's the Messiah, but you must keep the law, blah, blah, blah. Where James ends that, that council right out of Amos chapter 9. We'll see next week. It's phenomenal. But we have the 70th week. We have this last week. The church age is happening, which is where we're at right now. We are constantly admonished to look for the Lord Jesus Christ at any time. He comes back, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through, uh, what, 18, 19. He's going to come in the air and catch away his church to be with him. We see that in John chapter 14 when they were all in the upper room. There's where, you know, Jesus made a promise. If I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there will you be also. He's not talking about the second coming to this earth. He is talking about him coming in the air to snatch his church away, to be with him, and take him to his father's house. We've gone over the analogy of the Jewish wedding. It's beautiful. But there is an interval between the end of the 69th week and the starting of this last 70th week, the seven-year period, which is the church age. So Jesus comes back and he takes us home to be with him to his father's house, and the time clock starts ticking. There's a seven-year period. Talked about it before, very emphatically. The first three and a half years are going to be what they call a time of peace, or a time of, of this man that comes on the scene. I have a quote, and, and I'll just say the particulars, that they are crying out now for a man to come on the scene to fix this world's problems. And it is also quoted, and I will not quote the name, whether he be God or Satan, we will follow him. 
We need a man of the hour, so to speak. It is coming together. So the Christians are gone. The restraining influence, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the restraining influence is taken out of the way. The sin starting to run lawless. The man of sin starts to come on the scene, but he's not going to come with a horn and a diabolical pitchfork. No, he's going to come with one who seems to have all the answers. And everything there. In fact, he's even going to go to Israel. That's funny. He would go to Israel. If Israel is replaced by the church, why does he go to Israel and pact a covenant with Israel? A seven-year covenant saying, you build your temple, I will free you from your enemies, you will live in safety, you can start your sacrifices. That temple, by the way, is being systematically drawn out now. Well... Like Daniel says, right in the midst of this seven-week period, the three and a half years, this, this man, of this diabolical man, this Antichrist, will show himself for who he really is. And he will go into the temple, and Jesus authenticated this, but he said, when you see the abomination of desolation go into the temple, as Daniel the prophet has said, whoa, look out. If you have cloaks, or codes in your home, don't worry about it, get out, and so forth. He authenticated it. So, right in the middle of the seven-year period, this Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel, goes into the temple, claiming himself to be God, desecrates the Jewish temple, and starts a persecution that, that the Jews have never known. Then we get a three-and-a-half-year period where you have the armies of the world agitated. Sin is coming to a feverish pitch. Lawlessness is at its, it's, at its peak. And then we have the nations of the world coming together. When you can read that about the trumpet judgments in, in Revelation, how the Euphrates, the last trumpet, the Euphrates will be dried so that the kings of the earth can come in and they go to a plain called Megiddo which is in the northern plains of Jezreel, the northern plain of, uh, of Israel, which Napoleon Bonaparte said many, 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 many years ago. He came upon the top of the Golan Heights and looked down and he said, this is a battlefield, if there ever was one. Right in the end of this seven-year period of great tribulation, again, a time that Jeremiah says is a time of Jacob's trouble, a dearment name that God has for Israel. A time of Jacob. But wait a minute, Israel is not, Israel is not here anymore, right? That's what the replacement theologists are saying. That's what all these false teachers are saying. No. He calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jesus said, unless the days were shortened by the Son of Man, all flesh will be annihilated. That's how serious this is going to be. And he will save his people, Israel. Only a third of them will come through the rod of his judgment. He will save them, and he will judge the nations and set up his kingdom. So as we see uh, the nation of Israel, and understanding that through the prophets and the timetable that God uh, has us in now, makes perfect sense to us as Christians. The world sees the world, sees the world as falling apart. But to us, it's coming together exactly the way God had said. And Father, I just thank you for this evening. I thank you, Lord, for the word, for the confidence that we have in the word, that we can stand on your word and know every word of God is pure 
and he places a shield about those who place their trust in him. I thank you for those here tonight. I pray that as we go tonight, we would search these things to see if we're so, but yet we have a feverish attitude and appetite for the word of God. It would be, we echo what Jeremiah says, that I found your words and they became the rejoicing of my heart. Thank you again for tonight, Father, and I just, just praise you and give us a fresh flavor for your word that we may serve the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And Father, in his name, we ask it. Amen. We're not home yet. Let me tell you something. Every single thing that we say, every single thing that we do, God knows. Control your tongue. Use it to soothe and heal. Use it to speak of things of grace and of the Lord. Number two, do I harbor jealousy and resentment in my heart? Remember, Jesus said, in not only in Matthew, but also Mark 7, that out of the heart, proceed. Do you harbor jealousy and resentment in your heart? Remember, the fruit of righteousness is sown peace by those who make peace. If you harbor jealousy and resentment, I tell you, my friends, you don't have peace. Or you might have peace with God, praise God, Christ accomplished that. But you don't have the peace of God ruling in your heart, and it's going to come out. Number three, do I resort to sarcasm and unkind words? Think about it. Let's be honest. This is the time we need to be honest with ourselves and honest before the Lord. Do I resort sometimes to sarcasm and unkind remarks? Sarcasm hurts it hurts. Well, you ain't a kind of a wife. You wouldn't do that. I'm just joking. Well, you aren't. Do you appreciate what you have? If you don't appreciate what you have, you need to get on your knees before the Lord. So do you resort to sarcasm or unkind remarks? The fourth one, and I'll end with this. Am I pure in thought, in speech, and in morals? Because God cares about those areas in our life. He cares about the thought life. What are your, what's your thought life like? Because see, your thought life is going to produce what you originally Think about it in your heart and what you will ultimately say with your words. If you have bitterness and you have resentment and you have sarcasm and you have unkind words, it is going to come out. Am I pure in thought? Paul says this. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are a good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. 
The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. God cares about your thought life. Your speech. We've been talking about the last, what, 45 minutes about speech, about tongue. The tongue is a world of iniquity. It's not just a swearing word. That's a byproduct. You have oily skin and dirty skin. What's the byproduct? You're going to have blemishes. You're going to have whatever. That's like, like swearing, cussing. It's, it's a problem that's within. But what about, again, the sarcasm and the cutting your marks and the unkindness? Are we using the tongue that God intended us to use it for? And that is soothing. Speaking what is right. You want to tame down a quarrel and argument? I'll tell you how to tame down a quarrel and argument. This is not Christian psychology because there is no such thing. This is the Bible. You want to tame an argument down? Speak kindly. It's in Proverbs. Kind and gentle answer turns away wrath. You want to calm down a fight? Admit you're wrong. Or, or calm it down. I tell you one time when we were first married, we were squabbling about something, some stupid thing. Most of it is. My wife looked at me and says, I love you. Wow. Everything was, was, the whole rug of my argument was ripped out from under me. Love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, we can go around doing good, and we should go around doing good. But as Barnhouse again said, by all means, tell her you love her. And the last thing, and I'll close with this, is morals. Are we morally pure? Are we morally pure? Talked about a lot. Because I'm a man. Are we keeping our eyes on what God has given us? And what God has blessed us with? Or do we want a little bit more? A moral man does right because he has been made right with God. An ethical man knows what to do and does it because he is morally correct with God. I have very, very few times in my life have ever seen an ethical man mixed with an unmoral man that doesn't know the difference. I've seen very ethical men in business that are very immoral man out in society. God wants to control all areas of those lives. I want to be pure. I want to know that at the end of my life, this short, fleeting life as it is, that I have taken the time to invest in the ones I love and in the things that I do with integrity, with uprightness, with love, with sincerity. What does it gain a man, Jesus said, begins the whole world, goes out and have fun, and, and, he, and he spouts out, everybody has an opinion. 
and he cuts down to build himself up, and he's constantly, you know, has an angle in life, and he's using his tongue to get here, and he's lying there, and he's deceiving there, he's doing, and his life's over, and he's facing God, and he's going, what? What? I don't think that's going to happen, because when people stand before God, they're going to see him for all his righteousness and holiness, and they're going to realize that, wow, I, my life was worth investing in Everything about Jesus Christ. He's going to change my life. He's going to take control of my tongue. He's going to take control of my thought life because you never know when we're going to stand before the King of Kings. Is your last words going to be, what if you die in your sleep tonight? Are you going to, is your last words going to be unkind towards your spouse or your kids or your neighbor? Or are you going to die having used what God has given you to, are you going to, I told my wife one time, I said, I, you know, I don't know if I'll ever do it, but I want to die the last time I see you, letting you know just how much I love you and how much I care about you. That's what I want as a husband. The world of iniquity is, is lying between our lips and we can do nothing about it until we give it to Christ. Cam, would you pray, please? Thank you, Father, in heaven, for your word. It tells us that you're our creator. As our creator, you created all the parts of our body. With all the parts, including the tongue, pray that they will be in submission to you. We think all of our life and submission to you. Be pleasing to you what we do and what we say. We thank you for the blessings that we have. Amen. Thank you.